Hello all and welcome back to another episode of Life of Brian. Brian, how are you? I'm well. You're good? You want to yep. clear your throat before we commence or? No, I'm, I don't know what's happened. I'm just having me drink of water. You're right. a little bit distracted at the moment because we've got Hansel in the room. Yeah. And we're, we're home alone, by the way. So I'm in lawn and Tanya is, um, she's babysitting grandchild Noah. Yep. And Hansel's got a bit of an issue. Talk me through what's going yeah, on with I Hansel. I think, well, he's just frustrated. He's uh, up every, up and down every 30 seconds. And I think he's got an inner ear problem. That's my veterinary diagnosis. Um, we're not going to take him to the vet. We're waiting for the vet to get back to us. Yes. Um, hence, we're going to record this podcast now and then- But we'll I just... am concerned about his health, but let's move on. Yeah. Well, there's plenty to get through. Um, we had the Peter Pub over the weekend. Any observations from, from that? A lot of people into a small town here at Lawn, Peter Pub. I don't know, about 15,000 people come in. I think they have five or 6,000 swimmers on the day. So it's a massive day for the community down here at Lawn. Um Surf club run it. Don't distribute any of the money uh, to the local community. All goes back to Melbourne. What, to the what Melbourne about the elite. pub, though? Talk, tell me about the fun. You the, pub the pub was the best it's been in ten years. Justin Hems, many would know from Maryvale, uh, from Sydney, who runs very successful establishments similar. Toddies uh, up in um, up in Sydney, and he's come down, bought the Lawn Pub, put Toddies the restaurant in the bottom, and the place is absolutely jumping. I think it's the best it's been in ten years, uh, from a point of view of of young people. You know, the the twenties to thirty sort of range. <coughs> Excuse me, twenty to thirty range. Uh, you know, they had an absolute blast. The place was packed again. Great to see. As a person who's been there a lot, it's it was always an issue if you're in a group, hard to get people in. Yeah. The security were always quite aggressive. Yep. They just took a different approach. It they was did. very much the people's- Almost no security. They did have security there, but it was like they weren't there. They were they were very stand back, watch, and there was no trouble. And, I'm, you know, it was just really good to, to um, for that hotel to do what they've done for the young community of Lawn. Yeah, nice. And um, moving on, another little one about, um, so we've got a little place in Walhalla. Walhalla has made the news over the last couple of weeks for um, it, it being a, a spot in a feature film with Liam Neeson. What's going on there? Oh, is it called Ice Road 2 or something? Oh, yeah, It's Ice a Road sequel, to, equal to, sequel to something, but um, Liam Neeson's up there at the moment. and um, It has whipped the locals, the, the people of Walhalla, into an absolute frenzy. frenzy. They're, they're, they're following Liam around like absolute stalkers. We, we have got friends up there that are, are stalking Liam Neeson. I'm embarrassed about it. The Sears and the O'Neills. Yeah, they're taking secret photos and vision of him through picket fences and bushes, <laughs> and it is, it's embarrassing. They just got, you know, they shouldn't be posting this sort of thing. It's um, very interesting because they've transformed the whole main street of Walhalla into a Nepalese village, believe it or not. Yeah. Well, that's okay. We'll see it when the film comes out. But, um, you know, they're like uh, they're like the paparazzi. They're the Walhalla paparazzi, our friends up there at the moment. <laughs> it's yeah, it's it like is. they've never seen anything like this before in their well, lives. They've got Brian Taylor in the town. I'm not, why they're, oh, I'm not sure please. why they're surprised by Liam Neeson. But, um, so that's funny. Next next one. So the tennis is on at the moment, the Australian Open. Before we get to the Open itself, you were at um, an event last week, which is Ash. The by the lo- way, we've rented out our place at Walhalla. To yeah. the to the film crew, yeah. So I'm not sure whether Liam Neeson could actually be staying in our place. I don't know. They wouldn't tell me who's staying there. That's confidential, he, is it? He, yeah, he could actually be staying there. I, I've got no idea. 
And um, so, yeah, you went to an event. I was at the event also. Um, Ash Barty has launched her foundation. Yes. Tell me about that event and your thoughts from that. Kuyong Tennis Club. Um, I The thing that immediately stands out to me about the Ash Barty Foundation, congratulations to her on doing such a good thing, is the launch night. I think it's the greatest female panel. I reckon the greatest panel. No, no, I think it's the greatest female panel of all time that I've ever seen at any function, done hundreds, been to hundreds of functions. So Ash Barty, Kathy Freeman, Yvonne Goolagong and the eight-time surfing champion, world surfing champion, Steph Gilmore, that is absolutely amazing to yeah. get all of those people in the one place at the one time, all supporting Ash. It just shows you what sort of person she is. And the respect that she demands from not just her sport, but from um, from all sports here in Australia, it was a, it was an amazing night. And just to list a few other names, not big noting or anything, just to give you an idea of the people that Ash attracted on this particular and, and, night, and the people that support Ash and what she's Ash. doing. These are friends. These are really so like minded people. On my ta- just on my table, this is my table. Um, Mark Weber um, was there. Pat Rafter. Cooper Cronk, Ricky Stewart, coach of the Canberra Raiders, um, Matthew, Richardson. Matthew Richardson. That's this is just my table, and mm. then there's all of these other. Um, you know, Dylan Orcott was on your table, the Australian yep. of the Year, superstar that he is. Um, it was just an amazing night that these people from from particularly tennis. Um, anyone that's anyone in tennis was there. Um, it was a pretty amazing night. They raised over $100,000, so it was a great start for the AB Foundation. Yeah, so the Ash Barty Foundation, just for those who are curious, um, it's about helping young people achieve their dreams through sport and education. So it's about getting involved in local communities and using sport as a as a launching pad for, for young people's lives. So typical Ash would be involved in something like this. Um, yeah, so good honour. Well done. Great job. This, and, this, will be a, this will be a great foundation. And just staying on tennis, thoughts about the Australian Open thus far. We're recording this on, on Friday the, the 19th, so there's a weekend of tennis to come. Something about the Australian Open this year, boring, comes to mind. Why is that? Boring, boring, boring. Um, why? Because it's boring. Well, um, you, you don't have the start. You don't, I'm not you motivated. Uh, I don't know the fact that Kyrgios is not there. I was hopeful for Kokonakis and, and he didn't play very well the other night. You know, I just – our women aren't quite there. We've had a couple of okay – but it's just uh, – even forget the Australians and just look at the world. You've got Djokovic, um, incredible player, greatest player of all time probably. Um, boring. Um <laughs> And and then and the women's no one even knows at the moment. There's been so much um, rearrangement of the top fifty women in the world that no one really knows who's who, and there's no clear number one women woman in the world at the moment. Now a lot of people say oh, that's great for competition. I like champions. I like people dominating. I like superstars emerging, and that's what I really like to follow and I just feel like there's no one for me to grab onto at the moment. I mean, uh, men men and women, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's, there's just something about it that at the moment is not as appealing as it used to be, even though the crowds would say the opposite to what I'm saying. But I say that, you know, Mel Burnings are just desperate to go to a sporting event anyway. I think, anyway. yeah, the Australian Open in yeah. person is always Yeah, a, they wouldn't give event. a shit who, yeah. they're, who they're watching. They just want to go and be part of what is a fantastic event. Yeah. Looks, it looks to be a great event. It looks like uh, um, Tennis Australia 
have done an amazing job in putting all of this together again. It's a shame. It's a shame Channel 9 have got it and not 7. Maybe that's why. Um, possibly. Um, TJ and everyone at Nine's doing a great job with it. Yeah, TJ's great. They're doing a great job with it, but it's, yep. you know, it's just it's not their fault. Yep. Um, as we have done for the last few episodes of this podcast, we are brought to you by Clubby Sports. Mm. What um, do they do? Well, they, Who are they? You, you explain this every week and I'm still not sure. I'm a little bit confused. So it's but something to do with Dylan, Dylan Buckley, Buckley and his clan and they've sort of got their all their different sort of podcast networks and it's that that's the banner, that's the umbrella that they uh, live under. Right. And we're under that. Clubby um, Sports, right. Yes. Um, and I was listening to one of Dylan Buckley's podcasts the other day. They do minis. So the episodes are called minis and in the minis- Is that because Dylan can't sit still for more than five minutes? So he just does yeah, five minutes it's a and then, It's a 30 and minute. He, he's got bloody ADD or whatever he's got and then he's yeah. out the door and then he comes back in and does another five minutes exactly. on something else. It's a 30-minute episode and he gets others from the office. So a few of those people that I, yeah. I sit there and work with, um, you know, Mon, Sean, Moff, um, yeah. Scotty, they, they come in and I've never heard so much shit talked in 30 minutes in my life. They just talk about- themselves and the day. It's, it's kind of interesting, oh, but. This is a part of the generation. Anyway, move on. What else? But anyway, so Dylan said at the end of the last podcast he did, it's, you know, he's reflecting about his 2023 and all his big plans for 2024 and how it's going to be a massive year and he's, he's going to get healthy. And he, and he read out a quote that really rang home to him, obviously, because he's had a child in the last 12 months. He said, you would die for your kids, but would you get healthy for them? What do you think of that? Oh, it's deep. It's deep, isn't uh, it? It's Dylan, Dylan deep. But that hit me because you're obviously my father. Please. Would, oh, I assumed you'd, Listen, you'd, you'd die for Jordan, I'm 62, Ryan and Jesse. I'm survived. I'm not <laughs> jumping in a truck in front of a truck for you. Um, <laughs> so you wouldn't? So at this stage, I'm going to rule that out. So we're not going to die for us. And we're not going to get, well, you're trying to get healthy. You're on your diet. Listen. You're no, doing your soup thing. I don't give a shit. This is Dylan the deep thinker. Um, and it's far too deep and uh, it's an unnecessary thing to raise. Everyone cares about everyone and we just go on with it. It's it's too technical to get involved in that shit. All right, anyway, thank you, Clubby Sports. And while we've got Hansel, who's actually calmed down in the corner here, he looks mm. like to be recovering, what we're going to do for the rest of this episode is do a little bit of a deep dive on you and your younger years. Growing up as a young boy in Mandra, mm. um, I'm not sure where to start. Maybe you can just go from the beginning. But it was quite a wild upbringing and you're not from anything – Fancy, that's for sure. You're um quite no. a rough, quite a rough sort of neighbourhood in Mandra back in the sixties uh, and seventies. I wouldn't say rough. I'd just say old school. But yeah, Dad was the truck driver. Um, Mum just looked after the kids. Uh, Dad worked his ass off. What, what sort of what sort of truck driving? Oh, what are we well, talking? He, he, he was driving long distance initially, and then uh, was a bottler. He used to go and collect bottles around Mandra. Uh, we used to we used to on weekends. Dad would say, you know, because when when you go and collect bottles. This was all about recycling, right? So you drink the big brown beer bottles, and then he'd come and pick up, pick them up from your house, and you'd be paid, you know, twenty five cents a dozen or whatever it was. Cool drink bottles would be like twenty five cents each, so they're worth a bit of money in the in the recycling. So on weekends, so he didn't have to go around to your house and pay for them, so he could collect them. We would get a truck; it would drive slowly on the edge of the road, and everyone used to throw their cool drink bottles and beer bottles out the windows of the cars as they were driving along, and they would be on the side of the road, literally hundreds of them. So that was like a freebie for dad. So that was a regular thing people that did. Was, that was a and regular thing. No, that was a regular thing that we did. 
um, as a bottle collector and so dad would uh, make us walk behind the truck and we'd quickly grab them and mum would be driving the truck and dad would be there yelling and barking instructions. So that was just one thing that we used to do occasionally, collect the railway sleepers as well to make a bit of extra money on the side. So, so that was like his full-time job, the, the bottle collector. The bottle the bottle o. It was called. I think they were called marine dealers, a fancy name for someone that collected and recycled bottles, got them back, drove them back up to Perth, uh, where they were recycled back into the system. Um, um, you said the long-haul truck driving. What was he specifically doing and where was he going? What well, type of distances? Well, I think he was sort of doing Perth-Darwin, uh, Outback, Western Australia mainly. I don't remember. I was a really, really young So thousands kid. of kilometres though and yeah. servicing the mines in uh, some way? Yeah, possibly. Um, maybe there wasn't a lot of mining going on in those times. Um, but that was when I was about, you know, two, three, four, five years old. So yeah. my memories of that... Are very limited. What about the recycled oil? Was that yeah? He travelled all over Western Australia, um, recycling oil as well. So he'd go to a, a garage and they would uh, he would collect the sump oil that was gathered out of all of the cars that they'd service that particular month, um, and he would gather that oil, take it back, and it would be recycled back into the system. So, and we as kids, we lived in a small town called Mandra, just south of Perth. It's, it's amazingly big now, but it was a three or 4,000 population. We knew everyone in town. I used to sleep and fish under the bridge all the time. It was just an excuse to be out at all hours. I can remember going to the bakery at 3 o'clock in the morning, hungry as anything, because <laughs> obviously no shops open, and uh, going to the baker, do you mind if we grab a couple of loaves of this? It was still hot, the bread. It was just come out of the oven. Beautiful. And about to go into the bakery for the next day. So we'd go there, get a free loaf of bread. Uh, then we'd, um, you know, we'd be a bit thirsty. And the milko, the milkman used to deliver milk bottles to every house in Mandra. You put out your two empties, uh, you put out your fifty cents, and he'd deliver you two new full ones. So we'd either go and knock the milk the milk off because we we're thirsty, or the milk money if we needed to buy some cigarettes. I assume that's regulation cows milk, not, not the almond milk of today. No, there was absolutely no no other milk other than cows milk. No other coloured milks. It was just milk delivered in a glass bottle and, you know, probably came out of a cow the day before. It was that fresh. And you used to nick all the milk money and tell me about the uh, the neighbours' vegetable patches. when you. Yeah, you were- one of the things we loved doing is we were, we were a bit um, rebellious and a bit silly and Bit Who's wild. we, by the way? Who's well, in this well, little me clan? Me and my mates. I had four or five mates that were, and we, we, on a weekend or something, we we would. Amanda was such as, and everyone had a vegetable garden in the back. And if you got hungry, you you weren't worried about getting a pie at the shop because you didn't have any money. <laughs> so we would we we knew where the best best gar, um, vegetable gardens in Mandra were. We would jump their back fence, jump over the fence, pull a couple of carrots out <laughs> or whatever we could find in the vegetable garden and eat them. That's what we that's what we did. That's that's how we ate when we didn't have money. You know, when we hadn't uh, seen the milk and got some money off people's verandas, we would um, go to the vegetable garden. That's just what we did. That's so I spent a lot of my nights, late nights and mornings sleeping under the bridge under the guise of mum we're fishing. And occasionally we'd come home with fish. We knew where – I knew where every school of fish was. I knew the tides. I knew when the prawns would be coming. I knew when the crabs would be coming. I knew when the old big stingray that had about 10 gidgies hanging out of its back would, <laughs> would appear in the shallow waters. Um, you know, we used to go cobblering as well, which was amazing. So we, we just knew everything about the water as kids. 
and we spent all of our time under the bridge, the old bridge at Mandra. So it was fishing, not so much surfing and stuff No, it like was that. fishing. It was yeah. abs- absolutely fishing and fishing for all kinds of things, from prawns, crabs to, to, to fish, um, strangely enough. Um, but nothing. You couldn't go out on a boat because you didn't have the money. No, to go we didn't on a have. Boat. A, we didn't have a boat, so we um, we couldn't go out on a boat. Um, we we were literally under the uh, Mandra Bridge. Mandra Bridge is located on an estuary. It's um, it's close to the mouth of the ocean, and then flows out to this big estuary. So it was an amazing waterway and feast of all. Th- crustaceans that you could possibly get and fish. And because there are only a couple of thousand people in Mandra, it was it was abundance. I can remember massive schools of mullet and pilch and we would cast our rods and our lines. We'd have this massive jag hook the size of your fist on it and a sinker and we just landed in the middle of the school and you just rip it quick and you would catch a fish that way. It was bloody Amazing. It sounds like you and your gallant little band of bandits. We had a bit of a gang, yeah. Yeah, you lived a bit of a free lifestyle. It was like we were the black T-shirts. I think we were called (laughs) the black T-shirts. I think we were called rocks. We were rocks. That was (laughs) what do you mean? Well, that was the gang. It was called the rocks. The rocks. And they wore black T-shirts. Had a packet of cigarettes under the top of the arm there to make it look make your arm look bigger. And, you did uh, this all before you were 16 and a half when yeah, you left from <laughs> I started to tidy up around about 15 or 16, probably because of sport. But anyway, these, this, the rocks, we'll call them, or they are called the rocks, the, the black T-shirt gang. Yeah. It seems like you lived a bit of a lifestyle where it was like your parents had no idea where that you were and they probably didn't even care. Where no, was they like cared, the supervision? They cared. They cared. Yeah. So, what was like the supervision no, level but, or the level? We would not con them, but we would say, "Look, we're going fishing." Yeah. And they would think that's a good thing. Young think. people going fishing is better than mucking up. What they didn't know is we'd get down the. Yes, we'd put the fishing lines in, and then we'd go into town, which is only fifty meters away, and we would have fights. And you know, the Ruruna boys or the Pinjara boys had come into town with their Hoon van, their old EH or HD Holden, and um, and you know, we'd fight them if we had to fight them because you know the local towns hated each other then, and you weren't allowed to come into each other's territory. It was a little bit like that in Mandra. And so we own the the block, the block in Mandra. If you did laps of, if you had someone that was old and you could go in the car, you could do laps of Mandra, the block, and it was about a 500 metre by 500 metre by 500 metre by 500 block. Um, and we just do, used to call them bog laps. Right. And the, the cat, Turtle the Cat has just joined us. Yeah, all right. Um, Forget about Turtle. Shut up, Turtle. turtle. Pat. Hello, yep. Turtle. Yep. Push, push. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... When Pop, Derek, um, would go away on these long-haul sort of trucking expeditions, mm-hmm. would he be just gone for a week and then Nana was looking after yeah, you? Yeah, so week, days, um, overnight sometimes if it was close, ranged in times and, um, yeah. So but you do you think there was a lot of time where Derek wasn't around and you were raised by Nana? Surely. Oh, yeah, probably, probably, yeah. We were, we were good kids, but we were bad kids, you know. We were right in between. We yeah. could have gone either way. A couple of my mates ended up in um, in jail um, for quite serious crimes. Um, luckily, I didn't go that way. Is, the, is this the Rocks, but, but members of yeah, the Rocks? but they did go that way, and so that's how close it was for me. And I sport. could have easily gone that way. And sport, I think, saved me because I was an absolute sports nut. I did everything, basketball, football, Tennis, motocross uh, riding, um, 
you name it, athletics, I, did, I, I wanted to be involved in it. Yeah, and, and Nana was a big part of that in yeah. the community. Yep. What, what role did she well, play? Well, she, she started the junior basketball competition in Mandra. Um, I can remember she said, you've got to go to school today and see if you can find, uh, you know, 30 kids to play basketball, and that was how the competition started. And then she was a very big supporter of the senior basketball. Football, obviously. Dad used to look after us with the motocross. We had a couple of, couple of motocross bikes that were able to go out and uh, race motocross, which was unusual because we didn't have a lot of money. Um, but we saved and were able to, I think we paid, I can remember paying $795 for a one a YZ125 Yamaha um, B, it was back in those days. So, yeah, so that's just what we did. You're a very competitive person um, and this is a life motto that I think Nanny or Nana Shirley lives by. I've, this has actually come out of her mouth. She mm. says, it's not stealing, it's not cheating unless you get caught. That's true. <laughs> that's true. That's I 100% agree with that. It's not cheating unless you get caught. I would 100% agree with my mum on that. Um, and so uh, you've got to do whatever you can to that win. That is so wrong. No, no, it's it's right. Uh, if, if you can take a little advantage here and there, um, cheat a little bit, I've got no problems with that. Mandra Sports Person of the Year. I was – oh, oh, look, I don't like to brag, but I was you the uh, Mandra Junior Sportsman of the Year, I think, twice. And you did mention earlier that Mandra was quite a small town. So yeah, does Mandra that quite a any small significance? Town. Well, it's better to be that than not be that. Shot, was, shot put record holder. Shot put record A state junior basketball in WA, which was a big thing. You were a good basketballer. I, I, was, I was from the country. We didn't have WA country and WA metro. We just had one team out of the metro. So I'd get picked up at school at 2.30 in the afternoon before school even finished. Mum would have to drive me one and a half, two hours to Perth from Pinjarra and, um, you know, to go to training at, uh, at Perry Lake Stadium. Were you at the level where there was potentially a future in basketball uh, Absolutely I was because I played in the 16th national competition in Adelaide and then the following year I was to become part of the 18s, under 18s, and I was already in that squad and that was around about that time that I got um, got taken away through football. I played in a Till Cup team in Adelaide and, um, and then had to make the decision between basketball so and basketball football. So basketball was the love. Basketball right. and motocross were the two loves. Way ahead, football was number three. Um, right. the, the thing I was best at was basketball. Probably second was motocross and the third was football. Football came late. Although I played foot junior footy, I never knew I was any good until I was about 15. Um and, you know, started to play well at that. But even when I was 15, 16, I never thought uh, – even when I went to the Teal Cup training, I thought, what am I doing here? Why am I training with these guys? I'm not as good as these guys. So I never even knew I was any good. Mm. And then all of a sudden I was whisked away to Adelaide to the national championship and uh, did quite well, played on Mark Wiedemann, friend of mine, um, and he was already, as a man-child, was playing Sandful um, um, Division One footy. And I played on him in this particular game, did okay, and uh, that was the start of my footy. Um, back to the basketball, who yep. would be your player comparison if you if you were to say you play like X player? Oh, shit. Someone that we know, obviously. Changed so much. But I was halfway between a between one of the talls and one of the one of the point guards. So, so I would never have been a point guard and I would never have been a tall because I wasn't tall enough, but I was halfway in between, if you like. Yeah. But, I, you know, I, I led the scoring in the Nationals – um, in the under 16. So yeah. I was the scorer. I was the, um, you know, if you don't mind, I probably the, the, quarter- oh, the quarterback. I was the go-to man. Like Steph Curry or? 
Oh, you shooter or you or you backing down in well, the they, post? They back me in for sixteen to twenty points a game, and you know that's what I got. So you just scored it, no, no matter what it was. More, more a Kevin Durant. I can I can score whenever I wanted. Yep. <laughs> I was particularly spot. I was particularly good inside. It was an inside game back in those days. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Your ego and stories blow up every well, time you no, tell them. No. This is not ego. This is fact. You're asking me a question about what I did and how I played at basketball, and that's what I did. Yep. I was probably the, I was probably the main guy in the team. Uh, back to the growing up and the rebellious side, and I can see a lot of this coming through today because you are a bit of a pyromaniac. You and your brother Greg used to be expert bomb makers. Talk well, with- well, we're expert motorbike riders and we really looked after our bikes and both my brother and I were great welders. We were we loved being in the workshop, you know, messing stuff, taking stuff apart, polishing the piston, you know, cleaning the rings, put it back together, polish the ports in the barrel so we could get a bit more bang in our um, two-stroke engine. There is nothing you can't do. We, we could do all of that stuff and we did all of that. We, you know, we'd, we we We'd boil our chain in grease and to make sure it had long-lasting features. Um, but we also, as a result of that, Dad being a truckie and, and having four or five trucks in the yard because we had a yard out the back gravel um, because of the trucking business and then we had the house at the front. And so we had a petrol bowser um, which had thousands and thousands of litres of petrol stored underground. So your own bowser, you'd, you'd roll up to yeah. the bowser, pull out the stick and put so, it in your... So Dad would fill up the trucks, you know, yeah. hundreds of litres in the trucks. W- would a big trucker uh, come and fill up that bowser for you? Yes. That would cost a lot of money, yeah, actually. Yeah, cost a lot yeah. of money. So we'd have a bowser there and when Mum and Dad used to go to Perth to visit the relatives, we'd, Greg and I'd say, no, we don't want to come. Um, we'll stay home, knowing that we're going to do we're going to do some experimenting with some petrol bombs, and we would go and fill a two or three liter tin with petrol out of the bowser, and then we'd do a, tr- a dribble trail, then we'd let it go with a match, and it'd just go bang, and um, it'd blow the shit out of it. A couple of times, the buildings caught on fire, and Dad, being in the trucking business, had fire extinguishers stationed everywhere. And what he didn't know was he found out one day and was going to kill us, but every one of those fire extinguishers we had emptied because we'd previously had fires <laughs> while they were away and we'd hung, hung them back up in their position as if they were full. And, of course, if a fire broke out, we would have been in real trouble. So, yeah, so we, we did use – we were experts at petrol bombing. That's why you see me today when I get a fire going, I do a bit of a, um, a, bit of a little dribble and then it goes to the main fire and away it goes. That's how we get our fires going. So I'm imagining um, – sp- I'm talking big. I'm talking explosion, explosion, massive uh, black smoke. I'm talking scaring the shit out of ourselves. This reminds me of um, a video. Uh, and all uh, happening within about – 10 metres of the petrol bowser. Oh, God. This could have been – you couldn't have been anything. You could have been dead. Yeah. But that reminds me, I saw a video not long ago around um, – and this is what I'm imagining sort of if you're to take a sky view picture from, you know, yeah. the stars, the man during the Manhattan Project, which is when they were creating the atomic bomb in the 40s, yeah. um, around the Nevada desert where they were doing all the experiments, all these little plumes and these pops were, were going off. Yep. I'd imagine a little little property in Mandra probably the same in the 70s. Yeah. So that used to happen. And, and, and the, tell me about your chemistry set. Because yeah, you, you, you're quite a good student. For people of my age, they would remember you could get a chemistry one set, which was about the size of a, a stamp 
a stamp album. You can get a stamp album too. Um, a chemistry two, three, four, five, and the top set was a chemistry six set. So that was the size of um, a bit bigger than a piece of A3 paper, about that sort of um, dimensions, and it had everything. It had And bun- this is like a junior introduction to science yeah, type thing. Yeah, it what, had what? A, a Bunsen burner. It had magnesium that you could set alight. It had sulphur. It had all of these chemicals, and I used to. I didn't read the instructions. I didn't give a shit about the instructions. All <laughs> I did was get all the chemicals in the one test tube, put it on the top of the Bunsen burner, and just boiled the shit out of it, right? And just to see what would happen. And this one particular day, I decided rather than boil, I'm going to put a cork in the top of the <laughs> test tube, and then I'm going to put it on the Bunsen burner, and then I'm going to boil the shit out of it. And all of a sudden, it got to, it must have got to the explosive point. And I'm in a little room like we're in here now doing this podcast and all of a sudden the cork let go and the shit hit the ceiling, all this stuff that was just come out. Is this inside or in the shed? This is inside in the house in my bedroom and it was all coming out everywhere and it just blew the shit out of the whole place and blew up my chemical set. Um, But I used to light magnesium. I don't know whether you know, magnesium on a little sort of wire thing, you'd light it and it burns. That's all on the flints. When you you start with the flint, you scrape up the magnesium. (laughs) Like that. It was bloody fantastic. So if you had a chemistry six set, um, you you knew what was going on, but Mum never really looked up at the ceiling to see what what had happened to the ceiling. So I don't think she ever found out. But I, you know, I had a chemistry six set. The other thing we used to do with the da- with Dad with the sheds with all the dr- trucks out the back is we pull the truck out of the shed, me and my mates, and we get five or six of our mates around. We're only we must have been thirteen or fourteen, and we'd all have our black shirts on, and we have a table in the middle of this grungy shed, you know, um, cobwebs hanging down, um, dirty floor, cold, bit of wind coming through, not fully enclosed, um, just a grungy sort of bottle shed. Dad had some scrap metal around that he used to buy as this well. This is the Rocks headquarters. And the Rocks headquarters. And we would play cards. The Four or five or six of us would get together around. All, and, you, you know, the, I remember the most I ever won or lost was around about the seventy dollar mark, which was a lot. a lot. It sounds like a lot. I think money. we were getting about maybe two dollars or five dollars as a weekly sort of um, um, stipend. Yeah, we were getting that at the time. So seventy dollars was was quite a lot. And I remember we used to play cards. We used to play this game called Suicide Poker, which was basically you get dealt two cards and it's the best hand. And if you if you challenge someone to show their hand and you lost, you had to pay what was in the pot. So we used to play. We used to play um, poker in this. Grungy shed. How old were you then? We had a light coming down. I reckon I was 13, 14, 15, somewhere in in that uh, bracket. All the kids that I played with would remember this um, very well. Yeah. That was great fun. And And we'd put a bloody blanket on the table so, you know, the cards. It was all done properly, but mum and dad never knew that we were playing for money up in the back shed. What did they think you were doing? Oh, I don't know. They probably. Chemistry 3 set potentially. I don't know. Um, your siblings, so you mentioned Greg. Um, yeah. So he passed away very young, my brother. So he was two years older than I was. So he was a miner, um, really good with um, with equipment, you know, bulldozers and all of that sort of stuff. He was in charge of that sort of stuff, doing very well, extremely well. Was also a bikey, part of the, uh, which gang was it? Um, anyway, one of the bloody stupid bikey Banditos. No, it wasn't the Banditos. It was another one over there. Gypsy Jokers. Gypsy Jokers. Uh, that was the one. And anyway, he, he but forget about the bikey thing for a moment. He was working at the mine didn't, doing very well in charge of, you know, 
several million dollars worth of um, excavation machinery. It was in a small town, Southern Cross, in the middle of WA, heading to work at about five in the morning, four in the morning, felt um, pains in his chest, rang his kids and said, look, I'm going to turn around and not continue to go to work. I'm going to go back to the Southern Cross Hospital, which was a pissy little hospital, barely, you know, a tiny little thing. So he did the right thing, went back to hospital, got there about, you know, six in the morning. Um, They whacked him on all the bits and pieces on the heart and and the nurses said to him, well, look, a doctor's coming in at eight o'clock today. Um, You know, just we've got the heart monitor on you. You'll be good. Just sit there in the little cubicle and and it'll all be be good. The doctor will see you at eight o'clock. Well, guess what? When the doctor came in at 8 o'clock and pulled the curtains open, he was dead on the floor. So, you know, you would have thought going to a hospital that you would have been okay, but bloody nurses had forgotten to check on him and perhaps didn't take it seriously enough that he was in the middle having a heart attack. So the, the scary thing about this, if he'd continued to work, he would have got better medical treatment at work than he did in the hospital. Had he had any prior heart No, issues? no prior. He was, he was a big guy. Um, but he'd had no prior history of, of, of this at all and he died aged 51, 50, 51 52, somewhere, yeah. somewhere about that. So that was, um, that was, that was a shock and sudden. And yeah, so you, as you said with those stories, you spent a lot of time with Greg and he was probably one of your best mates growing up. Yeah. But when you moved to Melbourne, you probably grew apart. Just Yeah, yeah to- no, we probably grew apart. And, and, you know, he joined the bikies as well and was committing a lot of time to them and, you know, I didn't necessarily agree with that. That wasn't the way to go. He had a couple of kids and he needed to perhaps um, show them a better way than that. But, uh, yeah, I remember them turning up at the funeral en masse, you know, a couple of hundred of them turning up to the funeral unbeknownst to my parents that they were even coming and basically basically destroyed the funeral yeah. um, uh, by being there, I reckon. But I guess they were supporting their mate. That's how they would look at it. Um, but yeah, so, and then I've got a sister who is younger than I was. I think she's 13 or 14 years younger than I am. Um, and she was, she was a great sportswoman as well. Great netballer. She would have been very young when you left. Yeah, she was, she was about maybe, she was about five or six when I left. Western Australia to go and play football in Victoria. So you hadn't really developed a so relationship. So really hadn't really didn't know much about her and, you know, the, it was a long-term relationship, me being in Melbourne, her being in Perth for, for most of her um, adolescent life and an older brother, Stephen, who was four years older than myself as well, who's but still quite, living in But you're very close today. with Michelle now. I'm cl- yeah, I'm close yeah. with Michelle. I see Stephen quite a bit as well. Um, Mum and Dad are still alive, both in their high 80s. Everyone, I'm all four of them still living in Mandra. Yeah. So th- this is what football can do for you or sport or basketball, whatever it is you choose. I got out of Mandra when I was 16, basically, 16 and a half, uh, because of football, because I had the opportunity in football. Now, if I didn't get out of Mandra, all my mates are still there. My family's still there. I would have still been there. What do you think I actually you would have had been a doing? job. I had actually just won a job at Alcoa in a bauxite mine as a mechanical um, mechanical fitter, a pretty ordinary job, um, and that's what I would have would have been doing today had I not got this opportunity in football. How things can you know change if you get those sort of opportunities? Yeah, for sure. That's it's really interesting. What, so tell me about more about Stephen and Michelle. What what's did you? How were you growing up with them? Well, Stephen more so. Yeah. Well, I I left. I left when I was sixteen. I left Mandra. So Stephen at that time was must have been 20. So he's the oldest? Yes. Eldest. Greg was 18. I was 16. 
and Michelle must have been about three or four or five, something like that. I don't know, somewhere about that. I could be a few years out on those numbers, mm. but that's roughly what it looked like. So I really didn't grow up, you know, my teenage years weren't with my family. Yeah, the younger years were. Um, so, yeah, Stephen um, and I were a little bit different in our outlook. Stephen wasn't such a sports person. He was more of an administrator, always wanting to do the office stuff. and An organiser. An organiser. He was the organiser of the senior men's basketball competition and went on all those committees and did all that stuff really well. So he, 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 uh, he did all of that and um, was also involved in – University, I don't know, he seemed to be at university for 30 years. I don't know what he was doing there, but anyway. He's an academic. He's an academic. He's a very intelligent He's man. an academic as distinct from the rest of the Taylor family who are not academics. Yes. Um, we've touched on this many times on this show um, and it's obvious. You've got quite a bit of OCD. Where do you think you got that from? Um, didn't I, – I don't think it came till late, but I did like – always like the idea when I was racing motorbikes of having this beautiful – trailer with the toolbox there and perhaps even in a little tent if you could get it and organising things and having it all set out like a, you know, factory KTM works team, you know, like having it all professional. And so I've always had that idea. I think there's someone in your life, potentially your father, who's got a I think it's got a bit of that. Yeah, Dad, Dad, yeah, Dad possibly because he does walk around the lawn picking. His lawn in Mandra is, is the, like the like greens a, at any awesome golf, golf course. course. Yeah, it is. It is like the greens. He's, he's So he does that. So, and yeah, I guess may have got that from him. You told me a story the other day. I think you were mowing your lawn here in Lawn yeah. and, you, and your FaceTimes pop or something yeah. like that and you showed him and you were very happy with yeah. yourself and, you know, this is something we could connect on. Yeah, I was just saying to him, you know, do, should I put a bit of sand on this lawn? You know, and he said, you wouldn't call that lawn. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was absolutely magnificent. Oh. And uh, he didn't even rate it in the in the top ten in his lawn. So well, Sometimes when I have conversations like that with you, that's how I feel with your reaction. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, so since you've obviously had your life in playing football and now commentating, going back to Mandra and um, having most of your family there, what's that like now? And even going back when you were a footballer, how did that feel, maybe? Well, going back when you were a footballer into a small town, I remember Mandra is now 100,000 people, was three or four when I left, and I've gone back every year several times, not several times, a couple of times a year, um, and as I say, everyone's still living there, all my mates. So I, I have a great time. Mum and Dad are still there. My sister and brother are still there. All my mates are still there. Some, one or two have moved away. One or two have passed away as well, so I certainly miss those guys. But, so when you were playing and when you were really getting – in your groove and you started to really get a profile. When you came back, were you just like the hottest that, piece of yeah, that was, going around? That I used to – remember, it was absolute dick and I used to wear all the Richmond gear, the Richmond shorts <laughs> and the Richmond shirts. I'd wear it around town and thought I was absolutely shit hot. Um, so, yeah, I thought I was um, I was I was going all right um, back in those days, but uh, I learnt that perhaps that's not the way to do it. But, yeah. Oh, did somebody say something or – no, but I just sort of grew out of it and grew up a little bit. But um, it was pretty exciting for a young kid out of a small country town in Western Australia to be playing at a club like Richmond, um, you know, like with superstars, you know, Kevin Sheedy, Mick Malthouse, um, Kevin Bartlett, um, Francis Burke, um, all of these famous 
um, Richmond players, all of a sudden you're there to go back to Mandarin to be able to explain to my friends what these guys that they'd seen on the winners were actually like to say that, you know, Kevin Sheedy picked me up at the airport on my first day in Melbourne, you know, to be able to tell other people that was pretty pretty exciting thing. Anything else on your, your younger years that you – Feel you need a share or anything? Uh, not really. Just a, just a great um, – just that footy saved me. Footy really did save me because I could have been like my mates and gone in alternate directions if I, if I didn't have footy. So footy and basketball probably um, probably absolutely saved me. Uh, that is for sure. So and you at s- that stage that I come over as a 16-year-old kid, I was only the second player ever out of WA that was taken – there was no draft in those days. They had what's called a Form 4 and I was only the second player ever taken out of WA that hadn't played senior waffle football prior to being taken to Melbourne. Big risk. Uh, the other one was Steve McCann who played for North Melbourne. He was taken out of Geraldton when he was 16. So there was only only two of us. So it was a big risk for Richmond, big risk for me. Um, but when, you, when you're from a country town and you're about to start a mechanical fitters job in a bauxite mine in Pinjarra, and, um, you know, Ian Wilson, the president of Richmond, and uh, Gareth Andrews and Noel Judkins come over and put this strange thing that I'd never heard of called a contract on the on mum's desk and mum and dad shat themselves. They didn't know what to do. They'd never seen paperwork before, <laughs> um, never mind a contract. And we, 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 we weren't sure that we were being conned or you just – we had no idea. We had no legal advice. We had no solicitor or barrister that could advise us. So I remember a guy by the name of Paul Torton gave us a bit of advice on, on what the contract So there was no said. managers? Did you have a manager uh, No managers, then? no management at all. It was just a 16-year-old kid, dad's a truckie, mum's a housewife, we're sitting at home in Mandurah and we get this contract track thrust on the table and it was, you know, quite unbelievable because it was more than my dad earned uh, as a truck driver and here I am 16. So with the opportunity, um, we accepted and away we went. Yeah. I remember one of the things that really appealed to me about that very first contract with Richmond, they gave me eight return flights home per year to Perth, to Mandra, and boy did I need them because of the homesickness. So eight return flights Per year, so I, I can remember I was a plumber in Melbourne. I can remember going on a, uh, I'd go home for the weekend on a Friday night. I'd catch after work, so I'd finish at five. I'd be or four. I'd, I'd be on a flight at six, and then I have to fly to Perth, get to Mandra, an hour drive from Perth, and I would come back on the Sunday midnight, arrive in at five or six a.m., go to work. 7 a.m. Mm. That's what I used to do. I used to go home for literally two days. So you were pretty homesick. Like, I'm describe very homesick. what it was like for the first little while. Oh, I was crying and sooking and had were massive. The, were you on the phone to mum and dad back home? Yeah, on the phone was... to mum and dad, friends, girlfriends, you name it. I was incredibly homesick and was for about 12 months. Noel Judkins, who many in the footy world would know, was one of the greatest recruiters ever. He was the guy that recruited me. I remember he had an office at Richmond and he said he had never the general manager had challenged him about when the phone bill came in at the end of the year. It was $8,000 more than it should have been. Taylor. And it was me because he used to let me go and use his phone after or before training and I could ring someone at home just to feel a bit better because I think they knew I was uh, pretty homesick. So I came and played under-19s for a year in 1979 before, before I got the opportunity in 1980 to play my first senior game. 
Yeah, right. Well, I think that'll just about wrap us up for this episode. Mum's just text you. I've yep. got your phone. She said... What's um, happening with Hansel? Yeah, the vet is flat out. She can do 4.45 p.m. Okay. So I guess we better take Hansel to the vet. Yeah. Well, he's asleep now. He's still a bit funny. All right. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. Um, hope you all have a great week. Take care and goodbye. See ya. See ya.